You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. to have Amanda Gregg here uh, from Middlebury College. Uh, Amanda uh, studies uh, Russian economic history at the late imperial period. Uh, she did her PhD at uh, Yale uh, University. And uh, she's also affiliated to, with, at the Davis Center. Um, Amanda recently got a NSF grant uh, to study uh, uh, Russian corporations at the turn of the century, I guess. Right? And uh, her work is really interesting because, uh, well, first of all, she's using highly disaggregated data, even down to the firm level. We don't usually see this uh, uh, in Russia at this time period. So she really dug into the archives to get this material. And uh, second, usually the the, the story of late industrialization in Russia is due to uh, you know, act, agricultural backwardness, and uh, Amanda is allowing us to kind of look at the opposite uh, side of it, to what's going on with the, uh, with the factories, what's going on with the industries, were, were there any important barriers and constraints there uh, that, that didn't allow industrial expansion. So I'm happy to have her, and uh, uh, she's going to be talking about, uh, I guess, a, a broad kind of overview of what she's been working on uh, uh, with this data that she's collecting. Thank you all so much for coming out this afternoon. Uh, I always like to, to start here for a talk like this to tell you, you know, who am I, what am I doing here? So I am an, an economic historian based in an economics department. And, and what an economic historian like me is, is somebody who uses uh, the tools of economics to understand something in the past and to try to learn something about economics in general from those lessons of the past. Uh, as Paul said, my research focuses on the late imperial uh, Russian uh, economy and I particularly focus on firm issues. So what I'm going to do today is give you an outline of what I think are some major issues in the history of industrialization in the Russian Empire, talk about how my research has evolved on this topic, and uh, I think we'll have plenty of time in the end uh, for your questions. And I'm going to begin, actually, with a, like, the biggest possible picture of the kinds of questions I'm going to discuss. This is not a slide about Russia. This is a slide about GDP per capita, Um, across the world, broadly, from 1500 to 1950. And what I want to point out to you is that for a very, very long time in human history, GDP per capita, oh, in most places, was roughly kind of piddling along around the same level, some movement, but basically flat. And then you see the red line is Britain. Something happens right here. There's this breaking point, and then parts of Europe also start to come up as well. So this breaking point here, this is kind of interesting, it's somewhere between 1800 and 1850. What is that? What is that? That is the British Industrial Revolution. And if you were trying to think about what are really the things that make different places around the world rich versus poor, right? if we took a snapshot of the world today and wanted to understand Um, what explains the variance in those performance outcomes, it actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense to only examine today because the roots are very deep. The roots happened a very long time ago. 
This process of industrialization, you can define it as a transition from an economy that focuses on producing agricultural goods to one that focuses on producing manufactured goods. And this is interesting because of this coincidence in timing. It happened that this takeoff coincides with when Britain began to industrialize. And we can think of positives and negatives of this process. Uh, it's actually not trivial to imagine what the negatives were. Uh, if you took a look at Manchester in 1820, it would not be obvious that that was something you wanted to replicate. It looks pretty terrible. Okay, you can swim in smog in Manchester in 1820. And also, life is not so simple. Okay, in the countryside, farmers had great control over their own schedules. They're, the growing season coincided with seasons. It's very nice. There's a whole lot of downtime, which can be spent using, uh, using that time to do independent activities. The sacrifice to transition to manufacturing is to give up control. Factories were not the most pleasant places to work. Factories had discipline that managers imposed rather than independent discipline. But what were the positives? What, how might these phenomena be related? Growth and industrialization. Industrialization resulted in a massive growth in output and productivity through the use of labor-saving techniques, also availability of consumer goods. And in England in this time, you see the emergence of something really new, which is fun and entertainment. Okay, that doesn't exist really, right? Resorts, vacations, all this stuff starts to happen. Now let's take a look at our, our subject for today, Russia, and compare it. So in the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, Russia had fallen behind its European neighbors. Here we see zoomed in GDP per capita from 1880 to 1940, and we have a variety of countries here, including Britain, Germany, the USA, and down here is the territory that would end up composing uh, the USSR, and what you see is on a level basis, right, this country is, is way below, way behind. And, uh, okay, and we can, well, there's this thing that happens here, right? There's some major event between 1910 and 1920. There's a little dip. But basically, there's a slow growth. And meanwhile, it's also true that Russia industrialized much later than its Western European neighbors. Although, what's interesting to me is although the level is lower, Russia's industrial sector grew really rapidly starting in the 1880s and through the early 20th century. You can see, for example, statistics like pig iron output doubled between 1890 and 1910, coal output even quadrupled, GNP doubled between 1890 and 1914. And what's interesting to me is that this growth happens as a result of a turning point in thinking. In 1840, the Russian state was actually not interested in stimulating industrialization at all. Because again, looking at Manchester, it was not obvious that it was such a good idea to transition from a rural agricultural economy to an industrial one. The turning point in thinking was the Crimean War, in which in the 1850s, in which Russia's loss was partly attributable to falling behind technologically. And that changed a lot of thinking about um, whether to industrialize or not, and you know some of the results of this. Emancipation of the serfdom partly is a result of this change in thinking. So what I do in my research is I take a very close look, I zoom in on what exactly was changing in the Russian industrial sector. 
So it was behind that of Western Europe, but it was growing rapidly. So I want to know what might have been some ingredients that impeded Russian industrial development? How did that development spill over to the rest of the economy? And given we know that there was growth, how did that growth actually happen? How did imperial firms manage to get anything done in the first place? And in particular of interest to me is how they managed to obtain financing to make productivity enhancing investments in large machines like steam engines. How does that possibly happen in this environment? And then, you know, maybe there are some general lessons we can draw. Lessons about economics in general. And by economics, what it really means is about, you know, how humans work. And so what I'm going to talk to you about today are the results of roughly four-ish papers or projects. I'm going to discuss uh, in the first paper a particular quirk of Russian commercial law, which was a system of incorporation. Um, I'll discuss a little bit more about how the commercial code worked in the second paper. Uh, and then I'm also going to talk to you about some recent work I've been pursuing with uh, Stephen Nassiger from Williams College that looks at corporations in particular. So not just all manufacturing firms, but the largest and most likely to be externally financed firms. Um, and I have some other projects that I won't discuss, but um, we can talk about them maybe in the Q&A, if you'd like. In this first paper, the particular quirk of the commercial code that I focus on is the legal choices that firms had for choosing how to organize their firm at the moment of its conception. Imperial Russian firms actually had a limited menu of options for their legal relationship with the state. Any firm in any context at the moment of its birth and conception has to make a set of decisions. It has to choose who will own the firm, <coughs> who, and that means who actually has control and who is entitled to profits and assets. They have to decide also who is liable if something goes wrong. Okay, if the firm explodes and there are still debts to be paid, who will be responsible for paying those debts? In Russia, firms could choose essentially three options. They could choose to be single proprietorships. That's a, a situation in which the firm's owner is one person. That person has complete control rights. They have complete responsibility. And they uh, have control over all the profits. So it's going to be like me in business by myself uh, working under my own name. Or maybe I could choose to expand a little bit. Maybe I would like to bring one more person into my entity. So Paul and I could establish a partnership. We would sit down, we would write a contract, and we would outline uh, who has control over the decisions the firm makes, who has rights to the profits, and also what happens uh, if uh, we run into trouble. And what's critical is that that firm is private. Okay, We're going to do business under our own personal names and buy property under our personal names and take on debts in our personal names. But there's a third option. This third option is special. 
if Paul and I say do really well and we want to expand and we'd like to add some investors, we might choose to form an entity called a corporation. In Russian, this has actually two different names and that's significant. Uh, one title is Aksinernaya uh, Obshistva and the other is Tavarichisva Napayak. And those actually have substantive differences that I'll discuss later. This entity that we might form would have its own name, it have its own legal status, okay? Like if you think about the root of the word corporation, it's like a legal person, it has its own identity. And that entity does business in its own name. We um, might be able to maintain some kind of rights to the control if we own it. But in the event that something goes bad with this firm, all that we would owe is the amount that we invest. That's called limited liability. They couldn't come after our houses. Okay, they, our, our, personal our personal assets are shielded from that process. This sounds nice. Also, these firms have the right to sell shares on stock markets. Okay, only corporations could do that. There are many payoffs, but there's a problem. These firms could only be formed with special permission from the czar. Okay, I don't think I would need to belabor the point that that was a time-consuming and expensive process. And um, I've looked at uh, the records of this uh, process and you can actually see like the point in the, in the notes where they say, and then we visited the czar at his summer home and got the signature. Okay, that literally happened. And you know, as soon as I found out of the existence of this choice, you know, I think a several questions occurred to me immediately. First of all, how do firms decide which one to be? What are the relevant trade-offs? What kind of a firm would choose to pursue this costly incorporation process? And then what might be the economic consequences of the way this menu is set up? <clears throat> this choice in a little bit more depth. So what a corporation really offers is a package of advantages. And we can think about the packages, that package of advantages as really three aspects. And all really serve to provide the firm with access to more long-term capital. So this is different than a short-term loan. Okay, something long-term, 10, 20 years, for possibly for financing uh, a large machine purchase. The first of those advantages is known as capital lock-in. What that means is that in a corporation, once money is invested in the firm, it can't be taken out. So for example, in a partnership, lock-in is a problem, it doesn't exist. If Paul and I are together in a partnership, maybe I choose to buy the steam engine or whatever large investment in my own personal name. And then Paul and I have a disagreement. And I say to Paul, you know, you do what I want or I take my ball and I go home. In this case, my ball is a steam engine. Okay, so this, this actually creates a conflict, a potential conflict within the partnership that can prevent us from making that investment in the first place. That problem doesn't exist in a corporation because once the money's in, it's in. There's no problem of me taking my ball and going home. Also, as I've outlined already, corporations had formal access to stock markets. 
Okay, that's the only kind of firm in, in the Russian Empire that could sell shares on stock markets. Uh, were there stock markets? Yeah, actually, there were really well-developed stock markets in the Russian Empire from 1890 onward in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Kiev, Odessa. We have some data on these, and they, they were quite active, especially by European standards. Also, though, limited liability <coughs> itself can help create access to long-term capital. In a partnership, all the partners put in in their own names. If something goes wrong, okay, they can come after our personal assets, our houses. In a corporation, you can only lose as much as you put in. That actually helps itself to encourage investment of long-term capital. However, right, it's costly to get this form in the Russian Empire. And by the way, I should mention, this makes Russia unusual, okay? By the 1890s, most European, Western European countries had moved to a system of general incorporation, where incorporation was incredibly inexpensive and unquestionable as long as a firm met a set of criteria. So in Great Britain, you could form a corporation the same day, as, actually almost as many as you wanted. Uh, in Russia, it took a lot longer. Amanda? Yeah. Why? <laughs> why so much longer? I mean, why why this resistance to? Oh, that's a great that's a great question. So, um, let's think about this in the context of the autocratic state. A concession system uh, has a lot of advantages from the czar's point of view for a few reasons. Um, well, actually, I would say there's I would call the two reasons the monitoring reason and the too big to fail reason. Okay, so monitoring. This system, the concession system, it gave the, the czar and his government the power to examine and approve large, high-scale economic activity. Okay, everything has got to come through that system and get approval. It's a great monitoring mechanism. Um, and also, the thing about these large entities is that, as we know, they, they go bust now and then, which has large effects on the rest of the economy. And you can read records of how they debated whether to introduce a concession system. And what they say is, well, you know what? Every five to 10 years, there's a major bubble that bursts. I don't understand why we should be uh, extending uh, this kind of firm, why we should make it easier to form this kind of firm, which tends to get really big, they have a limited liability, okay? So who actually bears in the end the liability when a corporation goes bust? Well, it's all of us, as we now know, okay? That's borne by the rest of the economy. So it, it actually wasn't probably clear that the trade-off was really worth it. However, you know, in hindsight, what we can see is that allowing easy access to incorporation limited liability has a really large upside in an industrializing economy. But I just think it wasn't so obvious. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Okay, so what I argue like on this point is that what is being lost in having a concession system like this is a denial of access, especially to medium-sized firms, for opportunities to raise long-term capital and expand. So what I argue is that the kinds of firms that chose to incorporate tended to be good performing firms at the larger end of the size spectrum. And once these firms incorporated, they got access to high, to uh, long-term capital and were able to expand. 
and you can even see them become more productive than they were previously. Yes. So how much of the czar's own money was in these imperial concession firms? Because since he had, I don't get the impression power. very. Like, can you spell that out actually? Yes. Spin out exactly what you mean. Like, did the czar invest his own money, and how much? I don't. Think that was very significant, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's a reasonable question, but I actually don't think that's um, okay. that's entirely what's going on here. Yeah. Okay. So um, to answer these questions, uh, we were just discussing. I spent uh, a very long time collecting uh, in firm level data from three Imperial Russian manufacturing censuses that were conducted in 1894, 1900 and 1908. And, and let me just explain maybe briefly why I chose to suffer in this way. Um, so if you really want to understand the choice and the outcome, you have to follow individual firms and you have to see how they change over time. And also if you want to be able to run statistical tests, you need uh, at least random samples, but certainly a lot of data in the end, I actually collected the entire population, so everything from these uh, censuses. Uh, I'll show you the size of that in a moment. And what's very exciting is that the database that I use uh, essentially covers all of European Russia, which I think I don't need to tell you in this period, covers uh, most of Poland, Ukraine, and Belarus. So it's actually a large geographic territory. Um, I also am able to identify uh, which of these firms were owned by corporations uh, in a few ways. Um, one is you can actually see it in the name, usually. But to double check, I also matched these manufacturing censuses to an existing database of every corporation uh, ever founded in the Russian Empire, which is called uh, RusCorp. So you can actually check for sure, okay, who is what. And. Uh, I can send you like more details of the suffering uh, if you like in the form of an appendix. Yeah, Scott. Who was required to report what sort of manufacturers, like over a certain size or mm -hmm. certain output? Uh, the database describes factories, and so what a factory meant was um, either two two kinds of entities. So one is any kind of uh, firm that does anything that looks like manufacturing that has more than fifteen workers, or any entity that used factory tools. So some kind of mechanization. So you actually see some very small entities, right? Some, uh, some single person firms are in here. And so they have to be a, justified as a factory some other way. Yeah. Excuse me, I'm a bit confused yeah. because it seems that 1900 and this is a period, actually, which is covered by much more detailed uh, imperial census, Belvis, Barcelona, which started in 1897. So are you implying that these censuses were separate, that uh, counting the manufacturers and the, was done uh, without paying attention to the major census through which Russia was going, which lasted almost 10 years? Uh, yeah, exactly. I am saying exactly that. These these censuses work. So, okay, these are called the. So, if you look at these, actually, the way I discovered these is they don't call them censuses. They call them factory lists. Oh. Okay, and these were conducted by the Ministry of Finance and like a particular little bureau within the Ministry of Finance 
that got a copy of the US Census of Manufacturers and said, you know, naturally, oh, I think we can do this better. And so they started to do a few experiments in the 1890s. There was one in 1890, but they chucked it. It wasn't very good. And then they tried again in 1894, and they did a great job. And uh, then they started to collect a little bit less information, actually, in 1900 and 1908. But yeah, it's not the same apparatus as the 1897 Piedra Pisna And this data is much more detailed describing firms. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, the unit of observation here is a factory. The unit of observation in the pair of pieces, well, it's either people or it's geographic uh, entities. Okay. And let me show you what some of it looks like. Um, I actually I remember the moment that I saw this book uh, for the first time. This is the 1894 census. I remember opening it up and kind of like getting a little dizzy. <laughs> um, so every row in this data set here, every single row, is an individual factory. Uh, this is actually the Moroza cotton textile factory. This is the biggest factory in the data. It was incredibly vertically integrated. They do everything. They even like bake their own bread in this factory. They make their own bricks. Like seriously, it's amazing. But about this factory, I can know all kinds of things. So I know the name. I know its street address. I know the date it was founded. I know a complete description of everything they do. I know all their machines, how many they had, what type, what horsepower, uh, all their fuels, a complete breakdown of their labor force composition, and how much output they have. So uh, I'm just starting to scratch the surface of what you can do with this. Like I wrote a paper about like this column. <laughs> you know, I'm writing a paper right now with a student about these columns. I mean, you can kind of just see the possibilities here. Uh, it's wonderful to have data. Um, one of the bummers, though, is that in 1900, they realized that this was really cool but expensive. And so they started to only report the microdata as these short blurbs and from which I have to painstakingly extract information. So they show you a lot less. Uh, these two excerpts here, these are descriptions of the Einem uh, candy factories in Moscow, which uh, later became the Red October chocolate factories, the same entity. And I'm sure we've all had these, right? They're delicious. Okay. And so what you can know here is still the name, uh, the street address. You can know the founding date. You can kind of know what they do, but not nearly in the same detail as in the previous data. And critically for me, what you can have is number of workers and revenue. And in 1908, they add information about machines, and in particular horsepower. So 1900 is missing a lot of the machine stuff, which really constrains what I can do at the factory level. That's kind of a bummer but we work with what we have. Okay, and so just a, a note for the curious. Um, so how did actually this get done? How was this feasible? I had a lot of support um, from, from my university, also from the Economic History Association, which really generously will fund history research. Um, they had this endowment, and in the financial crisis, they put the financial historians in charge of it, and they did really well. <laughs> they know how crises work, okay. Uh, and also from the NSF. And so I entered, there's nothing you can do, okay? You've just gotta enter the data. And so I entered a lot of it, and I also had some uh, research assistants in uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. I had six people working on this. They were fabulous. They were actually much better at data entry than I was. And they also helped me do a lot of the matching. 
And uh, that was how I was able to get this done. Uh, it still took a, a more than a year to actually put together, but uh, it's worth it, you know? But sometimes it can cost into something large like this and you have payoffs for, for a very long time. And so this is uh, what it ends up being. So in total, there are over 40,000 observations in this data set. That's a very large spreadsheet. And you can see the breakdown uh, by year. So 1894, I think they, again, they spent the most money and they managed to capture the most of most small firms and, and all kinds of obscure activities. There were almost 17,000 observations in that year. And then in 1900 to 1908, there were about 12 to 14,000 observations. And so I, I often have to be careful about what's being counted. But what I really want to point out in this slide is just how rare corporations were as a share of the total entities. In 1894, out of these uh, almost 17,000 manufacturing establishments, only about 500 were corporate. These were very rare. Uh, however, also in 1894, these 506, I think they accounted for something like 40% of output. Okay, so they're small in number, but not insignificant economically. And then you can gradually see the numbers roughly increase over time. Okay, so more and more being formed. And if you opened up one of these books, like I did, and you just slapped it down on your desk, and you just ran your finger down it, um, it would jump out at you immediately that anything that's called a corporation is really different. They're much bigger, they're much more integrated, some of them are older, and they're much more likely to be mechanized. And this is shown here in this graph. So you can see, I mean, I don't know how you guys are with stats, but like the T statistic of this difference in means here between corporation-owned and non-corporation-owned factories is like 40. Okay, it's like a very significant difference here. Um, mean number of workers, corporations are larger. Okay, so they're bigger, but this doesn't really tell me if they're performing differently. They could just, just be bigger, but not very good at what they're doing. Um, you can break this down in ratios to see it a little bit more clearly. So corporation and factories had a lot more machine power, but look here, in terms of revenue per worker, okay, what they're able to produce given the size of their labor force, corporation and factories were a lot more productive. And that's a very significant difference here. However, you should be saying, but Amanda, Okay, there's a lot going on in this picture here, actually. Okay, because I've already made a case to you that the kinds of firms that chose to incorporate are different than the ones that don't. So in this picture, what you see is both the selection into incorporation and the result of incorporation. So this is a chicken and egg problem, and a lot of this paper, the technical part of this paper, is trying to pull apart the selection into the corporate form from the effect. I'm gonna just show you what I think is the, the cool part of that, not the you know technical part. Um, what we're worried about, and we know, is that maybe it's just, we're just seeing differences that were already there before the firms incorporated, okay? Just different firms incorporate. So what I'm gonna show you here is how firms that would choose to incorporate were already different before incorporation. Were they already more productive? Did they already have more machines or not? 
And um, you can see more causal econometrics like uh, causal econometric methods like instrumental variables and fixed effects uh, in the paper itself, if you're curious. Okay, so what I'm going to take a look at is the number of, is the factories that chose to switch within the sample frame I have. What's a bit of a bummer here is that it's not like there were a lot of corporations to begin with, and then there's an even smaller number that chose to switch. So what I mean here by a switcher is firms that they say are, uh, in 1894, a partnership, and then when I see them again in 1900, they're a corporation. They've switched. There were 149 such observations, and then from 1900 to 1908, there were 118 such observations. Um, so we're, question for the class, but there are more than 149 difference between 508 and 18. 822, where did the other ones come from? So some firms are just born as corporations. They don't switch because they only <coughs> ever exist as corporations. Like that's the less that's the rest of the margin there. And those are like truly de novo enterprises or they're like, you know, we just uh, changed the complete legal organization of the firm and actually that factory was there before, but now it's called something else and it has a uh, we no, those are mostly they're, they're true de novo, yeah. Yeah, true de novo entities, and they tend to be of a certain type. Yeah, yeah they there is so actually you know, so Steve and I are writing uh, several papers examining this issue of de novo versus transformation very deeply because there's a completely different I think economic motivation uh, behind both kinds of corporation formation. Yeah. Yes. Why did the total number of factories go down between 1894 and 1900? Oh, yeah. So this, yeah, this is about what I was saying about how I think that in 1894 they had the, the most resources and they were able to capture really small entities, okay. entities really far away, um, and also entities doing certain kinds of activities like, um, uh, I'm actually not kidding, there was like a lot of uh, alcohol production uh, throughout these years, but they, they tend to change the way they want to count them. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I have to be a little bit careful about when I do some of the data work. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Okay. There's also exit, right? I'm sorry, say that? There's also exit. I mean, it's firms. There is exit, but overall, like, if you look at per province, the number of firms is, is just monotonically increasing. Yeah. When defined on the same basis. Hmm. Yeah, there's churning, but... Like actually, there's a little financial crisis there, right? Um, but by the time you get to 1908, that's sort of washed up. Yeah. Okay, so what these pictures show you is the difference between those firms that are going to transform and non-corporate firms before that transformation. You wrap, wrap your mind around that? So these are the switchers and the non-corporate switchers before the switch. Okay, how, the, how are the future corporations different before they make that decision? And what you can see in this picture, the red line are the switchers. Before incorporation, they're a little bit more productive on a revenue per worker basis. Okay, and actually that's a statistically significant difference. What's really cool to me is that before incorporation, the switchers don't have more capital per worker. Actually, they have significantly less. 
which makes it look like these firms, these are the firms that are really good at what they're doing, but they're capital constrained perhaps. They don't have as much capital as you might predict them having, given how well they perform. Hmm. So the selection is about performance, not capital. But then what happens to them afterwards? After incorporation, you can show with fixed effects regressions that the corporations add even more revenue per worker. They also have a lot more power per worker now. So this is the basis of my argument that performance motivates selection, but then the result of incorporation is the addition of long-term capital, which results in further increases in performance. So if you believe that, this motivates a little bit more digging, okay? So we, let's suppose it's true. They're able to add capital. How? Where does it come from? I told you previously that the corporation is a package of advantages, okay? It's not just limited liability or stock markets. It's a whole set of things. Well, it turns out there are two kinds of corporations, and this allows us to separate some of these effects. The commercial code says that a corporation is a corporation is a corporation. They're all the same. Ignore the words, differences, and synonyms. It's fine. But this isn't true in reality. Okay, actually, at the moment of their birth, at the moment of incorporation, corporations could choose one of two labels, and it mattered. Okay, empirically, it mattered. The firms that chose to call themselves A corporations tended to be de novo. They tended to issue large denomination shares to wide circles of anonymous investors. They also tended to be overall larger. And critically, these guys sell, sold shares on stock and bond markets. Corporations didn't have to, they could choose to. The A corporations did. These they did it. The second type, which I call share partnerships, they're still corporations, but what they tended to be are these transformers. These tended to be already existing partnerships that needed to expand, so they incorporated. They would add a couple additional investors, but to maintain control over the enterprise, these firms issued uh, large denomination shares to a very small circle of investors. Only a few, okay, just, just a couple of you guys, a couple wealthy landowners often. And these, critically, these guys didn't sell shares on stock markets. So if we want to ask the question, is it the stock exchange that matters or something else, we can see if these are different. They're not. A, a corporations didn't substantially outperform the share partnerships. They didn't add substantially more capital. So from this, I conclude that it's not the stock market that is critical to corporation <coughs> success. It's that whole package of advantages. Yes? And so just hung up a little bit on, on definition of de novo. So you only observe firms every six years or eight years. So like, yes. is it possible that a firm organizes as a partnership in 1895 and then switches to, uh, incorporates in 1899? And so it looks de novo, but it, yeah. That's right, from our point of view, it's de novo, yeah. but in reality, right, there was a transformation that we can't observe. Yeah, that's, that's fair. If you don't care. 
Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm thinking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, you, could, you, have the, you could figure out if they were formed. I mean, when they're, when they're, you know the dates that they're formed. That's right. I mean, there's some things we can understand, like there's some external databases like RoostCorp that tell us founding date and whether they were really a new firm or not. Yeah, actually, I could pin it down for sure. By you using know the date of incorporation. I do, and I also know from RoostCorp whether when they incorporated, they were de novo or not. So I could bring that in to double check. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. So um, I'm <coughs> running a little low on time or energy or, or how are you all doing? Are you okay? You okay? I mean, yeah. I think I'm going to skip a little bit and get into the balance sheets paper because it's the thing I'm most excited about right now. And it gives me a chance to show you some more like super cool data. Okay. And so part of the motivation for this project is we want to understand this financing process in as much depth as possible. Okay, so I've made this argument, it's kind of hand-wavy, I think, that it's not the stock markets, it's something else. Well, so where exactly does the money come from? How does it move through the firm? And then how do we see that result on the factory floor in the form of a machine? To actually answer that question, um, we've got to peer deeply inside the firms themselves. And how can we do that? Well. So, okay, when I was a grad student, I was like having this great crisis because what I really wanted was all this data on all kinds of firms and not corporations. And my great frustration was that there's all this great data on corporations, but that's not what I want. I want the data on all kinds of firms. And then I, I suddenly had this revelation that, oh, there's all this data on corporations and I should use it. So now I'm working on that and I'm collecting everything about, so you can find out how these firms were governed you can find out how they were financed. I know how they performed from my data, and you can connect this to stock prices. And what we've started to work with right now is their balance sheets. So there exists annual data from 1900 to 1914 <coughs> uh, that shows you everything about the financials of every corporation in the Russian Empire. And it exists in these Vyesnik Finansov volumes, and it's a little dirty to look at, okay? It's very, very detailed. Um, you can find these in Finland or wherever you like. They have really all sorts of information, some things that shouldn't be there, like income statement sort of stuff. But what's really beautiful is the Ministry of Finance, which I've come to love very much, took this very detailed information and turned it into beautiful tables. Ooh. Which I've been able to work with, okay? But what's great is that we have both. So this is work I'm doing now with Stephen Napsiger from Williams College. And we love is that we have these tables and there's variables here and they're defined as they're defined. But if we ever have a question about what they mean, we go back to that. So it's exactly what you want. So we have something convenient to work with. And again, every row here is an individual corporation. Every, so you, you can learn everything about them. These are the variables we have. So the usual kinds of stuff, okay, uh, share capital, reserves, uh, depreciation and amortization, property, inventories, uh, accounts, every, all this stuff. We even have dividends, which you're not really supposed to have on a balance sheet. Uh, this is very exciting stuff. Um, we've collected it all, we've finished it, we've matched it over time. It's about 20,000 observations 
It's beautiful. Um, and we've just started to work with it. So we're kind of swimming in questions. Um, where we've begun is just to think about what explains the profits column, right? what makes a firm actually seem to perform better as a financial entity. And also, given that we have every corporation and it's matched over time, we can ask questions about how the corporate sector evolves. So when do firms enter and when do they exit? And what explains that process? And uh, I'll be presenting on that um, in the AAE department uh, tomorrow uh, afternoon. Okay, and uh, I'll just show you one quick result that I think is very cool. So this is just a bar graph that takes apart the rate of new firm entry and the rate of firm exit, whether it be death or combining into another firm, by uh, industry. And what you can see here are both the level overall of entry and exit and the difference between entry and exit. They both have a meaning. Some firms just have a lot more churning, all right, like we're all familiar with the restaurant industry. Like there's just a lot more entry and exit overall in the restaurant industry. But the, the difference is interesting too. If in an industry you see a lot more entry than exit, it means that essentially there are still profits to be captured in that industry that haven't been competed away yet. So these tend to be the newer, more high-tech industries. And you see this on this graph. So this is actually sorted by the difference between the entry and exit rate. And so trade and miscellaneous, they're just sort of strangely defined, I think. But things like chemicals, mining, transportation, those still here at the beginning of the 20th century have a really big gap between entry and exit rates. You can actually see the birth of a new industry by examining this difference, which I think is very cool. Okay, so this is really all I wanted to say today. I don't want to talk, I've already talked longer than I wanted to. Um, but I, I think I'm, I'm motivating, I hope, that there's just still so much to be learned about Russian economic history. There are so many mechanisms that we can explore. And there's great data. It's not the case that there's no data so you can't answer the question. And meanwhile, we're living, I think, in the golden age of economic history because technology has evolved to a point where projects like these are actually feasible in like a human lifespan. Right? There's ways to do it. Um, so Steve and I, as Paul mentioned, we, we were just uh, given a large grant from the National Science Foundation, which I think is a very good sign about uh, interest in Russia overall and, and willingness for our government and kind of like a, a tight belted moment to be funding this kind of research. Um, so um, yes, go forth, answer big questions and ask me things. Okay, thank you. <laughs>